I had a lot of jobs. I was a big time job hopper. That was one thing that led to freelancing. It was like, you're not supposed to just get a new job every nine months or something like that. And so maybe it'd be a better fit for me if I went freelance. And so that's what I did. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. Today we have a special guest, Jason Sweat. He is a Rails developer and author, speaker, podcaster, conference organizer, and consultant. If you've been in the Rails community any length of time, you're probably familiar with his Code with Jason podcast and his book, The Complete Guide to Rails Testing. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, welcome. So Jason, the last time I heard you as a guest on a podcast, you had almost nothing to say. Ah! Yeah, for a second, I forgot what you're talking about. But yeah, I was on <laughs> Matt Swanson's podcast. Yes, I was really excited about that episode, the service objects, do we need them or not? But you had a one word answer, which was no. How did that episode come about? Was that something that he sprung on you or did you come to him with the idea? Yeah, sprung on me is the exact way to put it. I got a Twitter <laughs> message one day and he said, hey, can you record something that just says no? I'm like, well, I have to ask what this is if my voice <laughs> is going to be used. And so he kind of explained it to me and I'm like, okay. And then I sent him the audio. So you were definitely uh, willing to aid in this endeavor here. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but yeah. yeah, I thought it would be interesting. Sounds like people liked it. It was pretty funny. Although I was slightly disheartened to not hear the exchange that you'd have about the topic. So yeah, definitely a worthwhile topic to get into at some point. But yeah, we just gave the briefest possible version on that episode. Well, we won't dive into service objects today. We want to get back into your backstory, hear about just what you've been doing in the community in the past few years, and especially what you've been up to in the past couple of months and your transition back into consulting and love to take that from the independent angle and consider how you're running your business and advice you have and things you want to share. Maybe we can dive into a little bit of your background. Tell us about how you got into Rails, how you got into testing, and also just solo endeavors that you've had. Yeah. So I started programming when I was around 12 or 13. And then in 2011, so when I was like 27 or so, I guess, I first went freelance. And then I've been freelance on and off since then. So about 12 or 13 years. 39. Did you work for anybody before you did that? Or did you just decide I'm going to start freelancing? Yeah, I had a lot of jobs. I was a big time job hopper. That was one thing that led to freelancing. It was like, well, this isn't really like how you're supposed to do it. Like you're not supposed to just get a new job every nine months or something like that. And so maybe it'd be a better fit for me if I went freelance. And so that's what I did. Makes sense. Yeah. You know, when I first went freelance, I had this vision of what the future could be. It was a vague vision, but I envisioned some kind of better lifestyle and more money and stuff like that. I didn't really know what that would look like or how it would go or anything like that, but I had some hope. But then I realized slowly over time that this vision of the future that I had, it's not that it didn't exist, but it was very elusive and not a lot of people were doing it. There wasn't a really well-worn path to follow. What I found was that the vast majority of freelance programmers are really just employees. They work hourly. The worst version of it is you get paid hourly, you sit in an office, you work 40 hours a week, money's about the same, everything's about the same. And it's like, what is even the point of being a freelancer if you're going to do this? And people do that for like years on end, the same client. And it's like, okay, this is just a job. Like it's literally just a job. And then there's a spectrum. Some people further down the spectrum, you might work 20 hours a week and you kind of have some schedule freedom, but there's a certain band of market rates and it's hard to get outside that. So the money's not meaningfully different from what you'd get at a job and you're still on the team, just cranking out the Jira tickets, whatever. It's nothing all that different from what a normal employee would do. And I've been aspiring to do something better than that for a long time. But again, it's very hard because people are used to buying the kinds of things they're used to buying and they feel like they have a developer shaped hole and they want to put a developer in that developer shaped hole and nothing else. And so if you come along and even if you say, I want to work 20 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week, that's like hard for a lot of people to swallow. That's hard to find those gigs relatively. 
And so I, after many years of freelancing said, Hey, you know what? This is actually not that much different. I'm not making much better money. I don't have much of a better lifestyle. Let me just go back and get a job. It's a longer story, but that's what I intended to do. And then I actually inadvertently went straight back into freelancing, which then did turn into a job. And so that was kind of that chapter of my career. It's interesting that you were focused on trying to break out of that mold of that typical freelance role that you were talking about. Because I feel like a lot of freelancers, they feel like the only way to do that is to create a product or a SaaS. But I feel like you're saying there's a way to still be a traditional freelancer and maybe have a mix of services. Is that what you were getting at? Maybe some consulting, maybe some products, maybe a different way of having a contract with clients. So I first started having this aspiration right from the start when in like 2011, when I first went freelance, I wanted to continually increase my fees and decrease the amount of labor that I was doing. The unachievable ideal is infinite money for an infinitely small amount of time. Failing that maybe $10 million a year for 10 minutes of work or something like that. But obviously there's a spectrum from like, here is a regular developer's salary at one end, 40 hours a week. And then at the other end, let's call it $500,000 a year or $800,000 a year, something that like would be very unusual at a developer job. And then could you achieve that in 20 hours a week? This was kind of the picture I had, again, vaguely in mind. Can I make like an excellent income with a very comfortable, relaxed workload. And now I've kind of figured out how to get further down that spectrum. You might call it the employee consultant spectrum, or even the employee freelancer consultant spectrum, where it's not three distinct things, it's continuous. And so now what I'm doing is I have some client engagements where they're paying me a hundred percent for advice. We get on a call and we talk for an hour and we get off the call. And the moment we get off the call, my responsibility is completely over. I don't have any homework that I have to do. They're never going to call me on a Tuesday afternoon or something like that. It's just, we have the calls and they're paying me for advice. And one benefit among others is that that is a way that you can get away from market rates. With programming, maybe you can charge a hundred bucks an hour or even 200 bucks an hour. Once you start getting up higher, people are going to start asking you, why should we pay you so much more than we pay other people? And if you don't have an answer to that question, then that's not going to work out. But with this consulting, it's not really a commoditized thing. They're not hiring me mainly for development. Again, they're hiring me mainly for advice. My hope is that people don't say, hey, I need help with testing or whatever it may be. Let's find a testing person to help us. My hope is that somebody's familiar with me because they've been following me for some number of years or whatever. And they say, you know what? Jason's a smart guy. We have some things we'd like to do better. Let's get Jason in here to help us. And in fact, that is how it has gone for these initial consulting engagements. It's not even that they were seeking somebody at the time. I just created an opportunity to say, hey, I'm accepting consulting clients. And they had been following me for a while and they hired me. I think specifically for some things like testing that I am known for. But again, it didn't start with them saying, let's find somebody and we'll evaluate four different people and pick the one we like most. They said, let's hire Jason. You created the niche. Yeah. Although I don't know if I would use the word niche. I think what I created is a level of trust. I created an opportunity for people to get to know me over a long period of time. Because on a podcast, when you're hearing somebody's voice week after week, if you're a regular listener, you get to feel like the person. And so it wasn't a very big leap for people to hire me because they had been listening to me in some cases for like five years. Yeah. And then it sort of self-selects because people that continue to listen to you like what you have to say, like the way you communicate, know what to expect from you when you are communicating. And so it's an easier transition than to an engagement around coaching. Yeah, exactly. And so I've really been enjoying this new style of work. The effective hourly rate is much higher. And so I don't have to work as much to make the same amount of money. It's kind of akin to when you're like taking a bunch of classes in college or something like that. It takes up mental space. Even if you don't have to do a lot of work for a certain class, it's, oh man, oh yeah. Like I have that math homework that I have to do. It like weighs on your mind. I've had times in the past where I've been working for multiple clients at once. And it's the exact same thing. It weighs on your mind. And it's not necessarily just about the amount of time it takes. It's the mental space that it takes up. Whereas with this, each individual client pays me relatively little, but I can take on a lot of them 
And it doesn't cost me a lot in terms of headspace to take on more clients. And so I can do a call with one client, immediately switch to a call with another client, but there's not really any context switching cost because it's more like responsive rather than ramping up to do a project or something like that. It's just a conversation. Are these engagements usually like one time or are they reoccurring? What's the nature of that? Good question. That is yet to be determined. So far, it's indefinite engagement. The client relationship I've had that has lasted the longest so far is about a year and counting. The ideal outcome for me is that I start working with a client and it goes well and it goes so well that we want to keep doing it and we become friends for life. And I continue helping that person in whatever way they need help forever. Obviously, it's not going to last the entire rest of our lives, probably. But I would rather work with a client for five or 10 years than just work with people for like a few weeks or something like that. I say the same thing, but I'm curious why for you, why would you prefer to continue to work with the same people over a long period of time? One reason is because you get to see the fruits of your labor. And then also, as you get to know somebody better and you get to know their situation better, you can create more value for them and serve them better. Absolutely. That's definitely what I found to be the case. I definitely prefer long-term engagements with clients in a fractional role. I do that kind of style of freelancing. But because I find that I'll have my best insights about the business or the app or what we're doing a year into the engagement, 18 Mm -hmm. months, I'll finally realize, oh, we've been doing things this way. It would really help them if they did this other thing. Or it's finally time for me to push back on this thing that they had felt really confident about in the past, but maybe isn't serving them as well nowadays or that kind of thing. The kind of stuff that you can't say three months in when you're pretty new in a relationship. Yeah, because you kind of have to earn it. It's a level of trust that has to be earned over time by establishing a certain track record and personal rapport and all that stuff. Can you tell us maybe a little bit of the kind of problems that you're solving or like scenarios that you're helping people work through in coaching? Yeah, good question. So there's one client who's kind of my poster boy client. He has a business that does inventory software for people who buy and sell used cell phones. And it's himself, one other guy as like the two founders. And then I think they have one other employee and he's the CTO. My client is the CTO. And he developed the software originally? Yep. And he's been working on it for maybe like five or six years, something like that. And he originally came to me, this is kind of a pattern. He came to me for very like technical reasons. He wanted help with testing and some other object-oriented programming, some other technical things. But then we ended up working much different stuff. And he and I, we talked about it one time. He was like, when I hired you, I thought you'd maybe give me some tips on how to code this such and such thing better, blah, blah, blah. But it ended up being much more high level and strategic and stuff like that. The main thing that I think I help most of my clients with is what you might call planning, which is kind of broad and vague. But what I'm helping this client with is understanding what his customers need and prioritizing based on that, which sounds kind of obvious. But if you look around, like how many people are actually doing that? And it's not easy. A lot of people build software based on the customer feedback they hear, which sounds very logical, but you get a very distorted picture of reality when you do that because you're hearing from your noisiest customers And so you get sampling bias. And instead of that, what I suggested to my client that he might want to do is instead of that, gain an understanding of his customer's world. And that's not easy. What I actually suggested to him is go spend time with people in person. Because I found that whenever I do that, it really changes my understanding. I will have a certain idea of how people are using my product. And then I watch over their shoulder as they use it. And it's totally different. I might think that they're doing X all day, every day, but then it turns out they only do X once every few hours. They do it like two or three times a day and all day, every day they're doing Y instead. And there are certain things that I thought were like big, urgent problems. And then I get there and ask them about it. I'm like, yeah, it's not, I don't really think about that. It's not a big deal. I was like, what? I've been like stressing out so much about this. I thought this was like number one priority. So there's just no substitute for going and spending time with somebody in person. And to your point, Jeremy, 
this is the kind of thing where you can't just get on the first call and be like, oh, hey, here's what you need to do. Go spend time with your customers in person. Even though I can say for sure that that would be like good advice for almost anybody. That's like kind of a big, crazy sounding thing. Like it takes a lot of time and money to go do that. It's not like a normal, common thing to do. And so I really had to work up to that over time to make that kind of suggestion. It sounds like some of the people that you're working with are not just technical, but they're also in a product management role. Because that sounds like more like what I would think of as a product manager needing to connect to users and how the product is being used and making not just technical choices about taking care of technical debt or test coverage or things like that or modeling, but how the product gets shaped. I feel like I can empathize with this person because if you build a a Rails app and make a business around it and you have a very small team, especially when you're solo, you can get so overwhelmed with just focusing on all the details and the customer feedback and you can't see because you're in the woods, right? And so having somebody with a fresh set of eyes come in and look over the whole operation can really provide some insights that would be difficult to get yourself It's not even that they can't get those insights themselves. It's like nobody teaches you this stuff and they need to be shown how they themselves can gain the understanding that they need. Because like they don't have anybody in their day to day work saying, hey, go fly to Texas and spend some time with your customers. Again, it's like a very unusual, uncommon thing. And nobody's teaching you that stuff. So they can do it themselves, but they need some prompting. I've definitely found that to be true. I've found that I've had to hack myself a little bit when it comes to this kind of thing. I used to want to wait for permission to do things. And then when you're working for yourself, or maybe you're a CTO or something like that, there's maybe not a person to tell you the things that ought to be done. So you have to give yourself the permission to do it. But it can be really helpful to have somebody else giving you the permission to make user research a priority. Or encouraging you. Yeah. But like you might have read a user research book and thought, oh, that would probably be a great thing to do if I worked at a big company, but I only work for myself and I probably shouldn't do that or no one told me I could. And so it's easy to kind of like skip that idea. But then if somebody tells you like, I'm giving you permission, you should be doing this, you in particular. Oh yeah, yeah, I should. You're right. And here's all the reasons and there's nobody stopping me. And now I've got like a green light from somebody. Yeah. And this ties into so many other things. Like so many people tell themselves, we're really busy right now. We're like doing things just however we can right now. But like sometime in the future, we're going to start doing a good job. Yeah. (laughs) And that can just keeps getting kicked down the road for years and years. And something I try to like make people think about is like, hey, when are you going to start doing a good job? And what is stopping you? Because if you do a good job, things are going to be better. I spend a lot of time encouraging people to spend time doing the things that are important, but not urgent. So there's this parable about sharpening the saw versus sawing. There's a guy in the woods furiously sawing a piece of wood and his friend is like, hey, you're using a really dull saw and it's barely cutting. Like, why don't you take five minutes and sharpen your saw? He's like, I can't do that. I'm too busy sawing. And everybody has that problem where they're spending so much time sawing that they feel like they don't have time to sharpen the saw. Even if they just made a small investment in sharpening the saw, it would pay off so much. One of my clients, he especially had this kind of mindset and he's working really hard all the time. And I suggested to him that maybe it's the case that if he were to go spend two days visiting customers, then let's say in a month, he could take two days out of that month and visit some customers and then spend the next two weeks working on things in response to what he learned. And then just take the entire rest of the month off instead of working like 50 hours a week for the entire month and actually accomplishing less, producing less value just because it's harder doesn't mean it's better. You can do things that are both easier and more valuable. Sometimes you find out you're sawing down the wrong tree too, right? (laughs) Exactly. And so those are the kinds of things I help people with. Identifying the right things to be working on and then working on them more efficiently. Were there other high leverage service offerings that you considered other than coaching? Well, the big picture objective was to transition from labor to counsel. And I'm a big believer in like very clearly establishing what your like non-negotiable North Star is. And for me, it was the whole increase fees, decrease labor kind of thing. And 
I decided to be flexible on how to achieve that, but very inflexible on what the objective was. And so the coaching thing just kind of came about incidentally. I didn't seek that out. In fact, when I first started offering consulting, the way I did it was I emailed my email list at the time, like 2,600 people or something like that, and just said, hey, as of now, I'm offering consulting. Here's an application form where you can apply to be a client. And I intentionally didn't say what. I think I maybe said, I can do coding or I can do coaching or I didn't say coaching. I don't remember what I said, but like I left it very open to see what people would say. Yeah. Cause I didn't want to bias it in some arbitrary direction. Yeah. And the coaching is what ended up coming out of that. And it started off very technical with all the clients, but then it grew into something higher level. Have you ever been coached yourself? Yes, but maybe not very formally. There was a period of time I paid a guy for some business coaching. It was only a handful of sessions. And I don't think anything, if it's only a handful of sessions, can really have much of an impact. So I don't think I've done that in a serious way. I would like to have a consultant. It would be nice to have somebody I can talk with who can keep me in line and like help me talk through my ideas and stuff like that. I don't really have that right now. But yeah, that would be nice. I was wondering if a past experience had influenced some of that decision. Well, I haven't been coached, but I am a disciple of certain figures or whatever. Alan Weiss is a big one. I think I mentioned that I read Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss. And at this point, I have several Alan Weiss books and I've put into practice a lot of the things that he has written about. Yeah, I know you mentioned that book to me. It's still on my list. We'll be getting around to it at some point. Yeah, highly recommend it. I've read Million Dollar Consulting several times myself. It's the kind of book that you get more out of every time you read it. So Jason, I've been following your work online for a number of years and always interested in the kind of projects that you take on, not just projects that are income generating, but just projects that are for fun or that seem to just be inspirational or educational, those kind of things. So some of the projects that you tackle are the kinds of things that lots of people seem to have as a personal aspiration. Oh, I'm going to start a podcast or I'm going to write a book someday. And you've done those kind of things. But then there are others that I've never heard anybody say, oh, I want to start a snail mail newsletter. (laughs) Very unique projects. And so I'm like, the snail mail newsletter was one. And going on a world tour, you recently decided to go on a world tour. As soon as you put that out there, I thought, I want to do the same thing. Where do these ideas come from? And how do you decide which kinds of projects you're going to take on this? And is it worth the investment in time and money? I find the developer business community to be very insular and kind of like incestuous. It's like an echo chamber. It's a bunch of people giving each other the same advice. And a lot of it is accepted uncritically and without scrutiny and such. And so I like to go outside of the developer community. There's kind of a point in time where I said, I'm not going to listen to any of these people anymore. And I stopped listening to podcasts, (laughs) stopped reading business books. And I just said, I'm going to figure everything out from first principles. I say I stopped reading business books and then I started again later, but I still don't listen to podcasts because most business podcasts are frankly not very good. It's almost like the wrong information is even worse than no information at all. So going back to Alan Weiss again, I'm a believer in like finding somebody and really studying that person's body of work and doing things their way. Because if you do it that way, then your actions will be cohesive. Whereas if you're very eclectic, then your actions might not be so cohesive and you won't get a consistent result. And so I said, Alan Weiss is the guy for me. I'm going to follow a lot of his stuff. And I was on my most recent reread of Million Dollar Consulting. I noticed something that I didn't pay attention to before, which he said, every month, contact your clients with something. And I thought, that's interesting. And I had read some stuff. I read an entire book about direct mail like years ago. I'm not sure why, but I did. And for a long time, I've been aware that snail mail is different from email in certain significant ways. There's not a lot of competition in your physical mailbox, especially in the tech world. How many pieces of mail in your entire life have you gotten from anybody in tech? For me, it's like less than five. I think almost all of them were from evil Martians. That says something about their savviness. 
remember that because they're one of the very few. You'll stick out if you do something nobody else is doing. And so I said, I'll do this snail mail thing. And I only thought like a few people might be interested. It was going to be originally just a very curated list where I handpicked everybody. I thought maybe there would be like 20 people who would be interested. As of now, it's 350 or something like that. And people are always like, doesn't that cost like so much to send <laughs> that newsletter every month? And it does. It costs a ton. But that's another thing that most people aren't going to do because it's kind of a crazy thing to do. And to your question, Jess, is that investment worth it? The jury's still out on that because I only started it last May, seven or eight months ago, something like that. A, it can take years before it pays off. Three years from now, I could get a $500,000 gig from one of my snail mail letter recipients, and it makes the whole thing worth it many times over. And until then, it's a waste of thousands of dollars. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And the other thing is attribution is hard. People are big on like testing and metrics and all that stuff. I don't know. Because again, attribution is hard. Like when you get a client, why did you get that client? Did I get my clients because of my podcast, blogs, email list, YouTube videos, snail mail newsletter, conference talks, my own conference? And sometimes it's all the above. Yeah. Right. Programmers are very used to having a tight feedback loop. You can type something in, run your program and have feedback within seconds. It's very clear and objective most of the time. Whereas with things like this, with marketing, you maybe never get the feedback. And so with programming, you can kind of fail your way forward and try semi-random things. And you don't even have to have a deep understanding. If you find something that works, then you're good. Whereas with marketing, you do have to have a deep understanding because again, you might never get the feedback. So you just have to know the right thing to do because there's never going to be a red or green test result that tells you whether you did the right thing or not. In general, things will either work or won't work. But for any particular thing you do, you often never get the feedback. Even if you get it, a lot of times people will put a, how did you hear about us on their form or whatever? And they often give you just like one option as if you could only find out about them from their website or from a friend or from an ad in the newspaper. But it might have been any number of those things and probably was. It's rare that it's just one thing when you hear about somebody. It's gut instinct a lot of times with these decisions and the feel. What do you write about in your newsletters? In my snail mail newsletter, it's quite varied. For my email newsletter, I try hard to stay on topic because people subscribed for a reason. And if I give them something other than that reason, then they might justifiably perceive it as something on the spam spectrum and unsubscribe. But with snail mail, there's no unsubscribe button. And so I can talk about whatever I want. So I talk about personal stuff. In the last four letters, I've talked about this tree that fell on my property. It got struck by lightning, then it died, then it blew down, then I cut it up with a chainsaw. And each of these things happened, like each month a new thing happened to the tree. <laughs> Stuff like that. And then I definitely have programming content. I don't know. I had something about code duplication, for example. It's usually very high level stuff because I'm trying to be somewhat brief. It's maybe a paragraph or two. There's been very few occasions where there's actual code in the newsletter. It's, again, just very high level stuff. For business purposes, my intention is mainly a couple of things. One is to continually remind people of my existence, because even if people are familiar with you, they know and trust you and all that, they might not be thinking about you all the time. And like something I think a lot of people don't think about is even if somebody goes to you, Jeremy, and says like, hey, Jeremy, I'm looking for somebody who can help me with my Rails project. Whoever says that I, Jason, am looking for that kind of thing. Just because you hear about an opportunity and you know somebody who might match it, it's not necessarily the most natural thing in the world to like go to that person. You almost have to be invited to send those people your referrals. And so that's one thing is to continually remind people that I exist and remind them what I do. And then I want to create a perception. This might sound kind of funny or weird or something, but I want to create a perception that I'm like a smart person in general. 
because that's how I want people to see me. Again, I don't want people to say, I need help with testing. Let me find a testing guy. I want people to get to know me, Jason, over time. And then when they feel like they could use help with something, they reach out specifically to me, not for any specific purpose, but just because they trust me specifically. That makes sense. It kind of ties in a lot of the endeavors that you have. You're not just curating other people's content. You're producing a lot on your own, whether it's podcast or meetup or newsletter. You're putting a lot of yourself in all those things. You don't know them, but they do get to know you. We do get to know you through those various media. Yeah. And hopefully I eventually get to know them too. I'm a big fan of that idea of turn strangers into friends and friends into customers. So like a lot of the people on my snail mail newsletter, for example, I sent out an invitation. I said, here's my phone number. Give me a text or give me a call. And not surprisingly, the vast majority of people did not take me up on that offer. But one guy did. He texted me. He's like, hey, my name's Tim, blah, blah, blah. I gave him a call. We had a nice conversation. He's coming to my conference. He already had a ticket before that. But that was nice. I got to know him. And so it's a two-way thing. And my intention is to do that with as many people as possible. That ties back into the Code with Jason World Tour that you asked about. And what that is, dear listener, is I'm just going to go around and visit as many people as I can to form those personal relationships for a couple reasons. One is because people are more likely to hire me for my services if we have an existing relationship. And for two, it's like a research opportunity. I get to find out who are these people who are following me? What kind of jobs do they work at? What are they into? What kind of stuff do they want to learn? And then obviously it's just intrinsically fulfilling to meet people and that kind of stuff. When does the world tour start? It already started. The first official stop was November 29th, 2023 in Chicago. And then I went to Detroit after that. I'm going to Ann Arbor, Michigan later this month, January 2024. Back to Chicago again to give a talk. Las Vegas for my conference in March. And then I'm definitely going to go to some of these upcoming Rails conferences, but that's a little bit more up in the air. Are you mainly targeting meetups or are you just looking for anybody that just wants to hang out and grab dinner or something like that? Anything whatsoever. Okay. And anywhere on the planet is fair game. It's limited by certain life circumstances (laughs) and all that. I do have a wife and kids and we have a farm and all that stuff. So we can't just pick up and start traveling the world. So this tour is going to last indefinitely and it's going to be kind of a slow tour. It's not going to be like a band goes on tour and they continuously visit city to city. It's just one at a time. I'm going to go visit where I can. I was reading a Twitter story the other day. This family was talking about they traveled for eight months, but they traveled three weeks and then they came home for two weeks. Then they traveled for three weeks and came home for two weeks. And I never really heard it positioned like that, but they said they really look forward to time away and time at home. That sounds like a really good way to do it. Yeah, I think this summer we're hoping to be able to do a road trip because that's one thing we really like to do as a family. You must have been doing your podcast for quite some time because either you just hit 200 episodes or you're about to. Yep. So congratulations on that. When did you start the podcast and what was that journey like? I started it about five years ago. It was an experiment to begin with. I didn't know if I would like doing it, if people would listen to it, if I could handle the workload and all that stuff. But all those things went as well as I could hope for. And so I just kept going. I never necessarily said I'm going to do this forever or anything like that, but it just kept being manageable and it kept feeling worthwhile. And so I've kept doing it. And honestly, the most valuable thing I've gotten on my podcast is forming relationships with the guests. And it was from the guests that I've been able to populate my speaker rosters at my two instances so far of my conference that I've held. Jeremy, I don't know if you and I first met via my podcast, but that was at least one of our early interactions was a podcast episode that we did together. Yeah. And I can definitely say that for Jess and I, like meeting guests has been one of the big benefits of doing a podcast. I could have anticipated that to a degree, but I didn't realize how significant that would feel. And there are people who would otherwise have no reason to talk with you who you can talk to. I've had big names on my podcast. Now I am acquainted with those people. Some of them I've even become friends with. How else could that have happened? There's not a lot of other ways that that could have happened. So that's been really great. It's really a cheat code for networking and making friends. Yeah, but it's another one of those things where the barrier to entry is sufficiently high that not a lot of people are doing it. And so competition is low. And if you do it, you're almost guaranteed to at least be heard. 
So have you always had guests or do you do some episodes without guests? I've done exactly one episode with no guests. Okay. For whatever reason, it was just the one. I don't have anything against it. I'm just maybe not the kind of person who's really great at monologuing. The guest format is a lot easier. So yeah, the vast majority is guest shows. I could see that being difficult to go at it solo. Yeah. And one of my like philosophies with all this stuff is don't make it hard. And so I don't want to do something where it's going to require a lot of prep time like a monologue would. Yeah. I try to release episodes every Tuesday, but a personal weakness of mine is I'm not always good at that kind of stuff. So sometimes I miss a week or whatever, but I don't really beat myself up about it. I feel a little bit bad. It doesn't matter because in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter that much. Over the long term, you're fairly consistent. And that's what people notice Mm -hmm. the most. If you don't mind, I'd love to talk a little bit about the focus of a lot of last year that I noticed in terms of your podcast, things that you were talking about on Twitter, revolving a lot around AI and ChatGPT. And then you gave a talk on the topic at FriendlyRB. Really enjoyed that. And so I was thinking, okay, he's pivoting from Rails testing to being the ChatGPT AI for developers guy. And then you were starting to work on a book. And then recently, I noticed that you've taken a step back from that. And so I'm really just curious about how far you got into that process and what led you to kind of pull back from that, if you don't mind going into that. Oh, absolutely. So I've had a lot of false starts in my business career. And I think when I do that kind of thing, it may cause a hit to my reputation because if you say you're going to do something and then you don't do it, then the next time you say you're going to do something, it's less believable. But with this particular thing, I had an aha moment or a light bulb moment when I was using ChatGPT for various programming issues. I don't use it to help me write code. I use it for other things. I used it and like once in a while, it'd just be like, wow, this is a big deal. And it became a daily part of my programming workflow and still is. But I found a lot of what I thought were bad takes around AI. AI is going to kill us all for some reason, specifically with programming. Like people were complaining that AI is not very good for writing code. Well, that's not a very good way to use it. That's like complaining that a spatula can't chop through a carrot. It's just not the right way to use it. And I found it more useful, for example, write tests and then help you write the code to make those tests pass and stuff like that. So I had a very different way than a lot of people of using AI and maybe a different take. Certainly not unique, but different from a lot of the takes that I saw. And I just felt the need to like express these things and get them out there. So I started writing on my own and then somebody from a publisher kind of noticed and that turned into a book deal. And I thought that I had a book in me, but after a few months, it turns out I just didn't. I had 20 pages worth of stuff to say about this and that's about it. And so I didn't want to like follow through with this just to see it through for its own sake. And to be totally frank, All this stuff was distraction from the beginning. I was a little bit undisciplined and allowed myself to stray. And one moment that helped clue me in that this was like a distraction and not a good direction to go in was when I was about to speak at Friendly RB, Adrian, who organized it, said, here's Jason, he's the testing guy, or maybe he's the chat GPT guy. And it was like, oh no, I'm deluding myself and creating confusion and stuff like that. They did have concerns about the length and stuff like that leading up to that. But I was the one who said, let's pull the plug on this. And my primary feeling about the whole thing is relief and positive feelings because now I'm no longer doing this thing that doesn't make sense for me. And now I can continue. I can resume going in a direction that does make sense. When you said you were relieved... Before that, were you starting to procrastinate and not trying to write? Did you have to really push yourself? It was hard to make myself write for the sake of writing rather than because I had something to say. And so once it got to that point where I felt like I was just writing for the sake of increasing the page count, that didn't feel great. Sometimes procrastination is a feature. Yeah. Do you think the topic is maybe just too narrow for a book? Do you think that there's enough there for someone to write a book about? In particular, how to use LLMs for development process, like as part of your development toolkit or whatever. Do you think there's enough content there and nuance that needs to be fleshed out into a whole book? Or do you feel like by itself, the topic is just too narrow? Maybe just a booklet or something like that. I'm not sure. My suspicion is it's just a booklet length kind of thing. All I know for sure is I don't have a whole book in me. I was a little surprised when you announced that, hey, we're not going to be doing the book. 
because I felt like earlier in the year, a lot of people were asking how to use ChatGPT in particular with their development workflow. And I would say you should listen to Jason's podcast because he's talking a lot about this in the past few months. You can kind of see him changing his mind or forming his opinions over time as he continues to talk to other people about how they're using it. And you'd come up with these various categories for use. And all of that by itself was plenty valuable. It didn't necessarily need to be a book. I didn't see it as like went down this path and didn't complete what I needed from that. It was already a useful thing to have somebody talking about the tools that we're using in ways that we haven't had enough experience yet with how they're being used. So you're having the conversations and sort of working through on the front lines of that process so that other people can benefit from it. It turns out that's not a book. That's totally fine. But there's plenty of good discussion along the way to make that valuable and useful to it. I think a lot of developers... Yeah, I do want to have a single resource that I could hand to people and be like, here's everything I think about AI. But I think when that friendly RBE talk comes out that I gave about ChatGPT, that'll be at least a decent approximation where I can say, hey, if you want to get set in the right direction on using ChatGPT for programming, here's a decent 20 minute resource or whatever. I want to say that is out. Yes, it is there. Oh, wow. As of seven days ago. Live announcement. We'll link it up in the show notes. I'd love to come back a little bit to consulting as we get closer to wrapping up here. This isn't your first time consulting. You're kind of coming back to it fresh as of a few months ago. Are there any things that you're either thinking about differently about yourself, maybe beyond the coaching service offering that's maybe new? Are there any other ways that you're approaching this differently in terms of your process, the way you think about consulting, what your motivations are, anything like that? Yes. The answer is definitely yes. But how that might take some unpacking, I'm not sure if I have it all on deck ready to go. But I can say a couple of things for sure. In my previous rounds of freelancing, I didn't have this whole what you might call personal brand anywhere near the strength that it is today. As you know, Jeremy, I've been doing my podcast, conference talks, YouTube videos, all this stuff. And I've been doing most of these things for quite a long time. And I feel like I've kind of made a mark and become known in certain circles. And that has definitely helped. All this stuff has kind of helped me figure out who I am and who I want to be and all that kind of stuff. And that's definitely helpful because when you're just starting out trying to do freelancing or consulting or whatever, your options are almost infinite and it makes it hard. There's a saying when you have a thousand options, you have no options. And it's really hard just to arbitrarily pick something. And so now I've kind of carved a groove for myself. I'm going in this direction. I have this certain groove. I can do things that are in this groove. I'm not going to do things that are out of this groove. When I did the AI stuff, I went out of the groove. And so that's one part of it. Another part is the style of services. Like we talked about, I'm trying not to do hourly coding so much and focusing more on the council. I still do hourly coding, but that's not like my main desired outcome. And then another thing that's different is this time I have more of a feeling like I'm actually helping people. A very sad fact of the development world, and maybe just the world in general, is that most organizations are doing really bad and they're never going to do good. It sounds like pessimistic and cynical to say, and I don't want to believe in a world where that's true. And I've tried really hard not to believe in a world where that's true. But reality has shown me over and over again that absolutely is the case. When you say bad, do you mean like they're not doing a good job like we talked about earlier? I'm going to do a good job later when I have time. Or do you mean something else by that? Yeah, like creating a mess of code base, for example. Not only is it mess, but they're making it worse every single day. They have an entire development team worth of people just piling on stuff. But even bigger than that, just like the broad product design. Nobody ever stepped back and said, what is our product? What are we trying to do? How do we organize the product so it's like cohesive and pleasant to use and makes it easy for people to do the jobs they need to do? If you think about Apple's products under Steve Jobs, how well made those products were designed, it's like kind of the opposite of that. And then they talk like they actually care about doing something good. And it's like, come on, guys, do we care about doing good or do we not? Because either we just care about cranking out the next thing and making it to tomorrow, or we care about doing something good. And like either one, okay, that's your choice. But let's not say that we're aspiring for greatness while we're actually just doing a bad job. 
And so I don't want to work for people who don't want to be helped. And honestly, that's most organizations is they just want to keep the lights on. They're doing the day to day. They're not interested in getting better. And frankly, I hate to say it, but here's a statement that is like true by definition. Most people are not exceptionally intelligent. About half of people are below average intelligence. And so it's rare to find somebody who's extraordinarily smart. And when it comes to like building a really good product, you have to be really smart in a lot of different separate areas and other qualities too, like conscientiousness and having good taste and stuff like that. It's rare to find fertile soil within which to work. And years ago when I was doing freelancing, I would find myself working for organizations that were in that category of the 80% of organizations out there that are doing bad and never going to do good. Any help you might try to provide is just pearls before swine and they're not interested in your advice or help or anything like that. And that's just not a good place to be. And so now I only want to work with people who want to be helped and can be helped. And 100% of my clients are those kinds of people. And that is so much more fulfilling to work with those people and look back over the months and say, wow, we used to be back there. And now we're here. Things are so much better now, rather than the typical developer experience, which is the Sisyphean pushing the boulder up the hill and it just rolls back down again. And then you do the same thing tomorrow. I definitely think that is one of the great benefits to growing in sort of seniority as a consultant is you get to be more selective about those clients to find the ones that really do care, not just about the immediate deliverable, but about getting better. You may not be able to be choosy when you're early in your career. You may just have to pay bills. And I think that's really okay. You have to do what you have to do when you start. But over time, you have more ability to choose the kinds of clients that value the same things you value, that where you're really both pulling in the same direction. Your own natural energy lends itself to the organization, their objectives. So you've got good alignment. And that feels really good because it feels like finding a dance partner that knows how to dance like you like to dance and maybe at the same skill level and that sort of thing. It's hard to dance with someone that doesn't dance at your skill level and with your sensibilities. I think that really matters and it's a big benefit. I think it's also interesting because what you're saying about coaching, it's this high leverage activity. And if you're trying to affect change in an organization as a developer, you have very low leverage to make that happen if you're just pushing PRs and pulling tickets and that sort of thing. There's some things that you can do, but you're always sort of managing up and there's sort of a limit to the amount of energy you can put into those things without getting the other work done that's been expected of you. But you move into these other areas like coaching, working with engineering leaders, and that's where you can have way more leverage. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And when you're in a programmer role at an organization, it's again, that developer shaped hole type thing. People don't see you in any other light and they aren't particularly interested in seeing you in any other light. And so you're not going to be heard. But then if you market yourself and put a lot of yourself out there, then that can have the benefit of attracting the people who like what you have to say and repel the people who don't. And so naturally, the people who end up wanting to have a deeper relationship and actually working together, those are going to be the people who align with you. I'm curious, do you have any insights into life cycle of a product. And it seems as developers, especially early on, we're encouraged to like slap together MVP, right? Just put out something that works quickly and get feedback. And if the feedback works, or if you're successful in that, then you quickly get customers and then you get more feedback and then you get more customers and you get more requests. And this thing just starts to snowball. And so how do you take that fast moving train and do what you were just talking about with focusing on making it a great product versus just keeping the snowball rolling. Well, there's a popular idea that it's more economical and smarter to create a mess. And then once you get product market fit or whatever, clean up the mess. But I think that people who advocate that way of working really underestimate the cost of cleaning up the mess. Tech debt is huge. Sometimes the mess is so expensive to clean up that you can't afford to do it at all. And so it will never get cleaned up. And so you're stuck with the mess forever. And that's not better. And when you do it this way, when you say, I'm going to do it sloppily and do it as fast as I can in the beginning, because I don't know if it's going to get traction or not, you're betting against yourself. And then if you win, whatever that means, if the product takes off, then you're in possession of this mess that you now have to do something with. 
and you're really going to pay for it. Like the amount that you saved in the beginning, you're going to pay such a high interest rate. And I can't say that I know for absolute certain that in every single case, that's not the way to go. But my gut tells me that it's not smart. A general policy of always working from a solid foundation is probably going to be the most economical for most people most of the time. Solid foundation and I think a good balance too, right? Sometimes you just got to push something out and get it done if it's urgent. But if you balance things and try to focus on maintaining quality and direction, then that can pay well too. Yeah, people go too far in that direction. It is true that sometimes you just have to crank out something messy and get it out there. But I think most organizations operate in a permanent emergency. Exactly. And that obviously doesn't lead to a good place. All right, Jason, as we come to a close, we want to touch on something that's upcoming for you, the Sin City Ruby Conference. Give us some dates and some insight into what's going to happen there. Yeah. So Sin City Ruby happens March 21st and 22nd, 2024 in Las Vegas, of course. It is a small conference. This is the second time this conference will have happened. The first Sin City Ruby was where I met Jeremy in person for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy these smaller Ruby conferences like Southeast Ruby or Friendly RB, which me and Jeremy both went to recently, you get to make deeper connections with people, at least has been my experience. And you come away with new friends in a way that isn't always the case with the bigger conferences. And so for this one, I'm limiting it to a max of 100 people. Right now, there's about 50 or 55 people who have bought tickets. I get 56. 56? All right. And this year is going to feature some new things from last year. I don't know if, Jeremy, if you even know about these things yet, but there's going to be some games, maybe some trivia type stuff, but there's going to be prizes. Okay. There's going to be a big box of very miscellaneous prizes, (laughs) and there's going to be arm wrestling. I heard about the arm wrestling. (laughs) I'm definitely not winning the arm wrestling. (laughs) And my wife is going to participate in the arm wrestling, and I think she's going to beat some people. I heard you say that, and that made me really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) What's the background behind that? Does your wife do CrossFit or bodybuilding or weightlifting or something? She does farm work. She's just strong. I get it. My wife does CrossFit and she can outlift a lot of men. Yeah, bring her. She can arm wrestle too. She's coming. Yeah. Yeah. So there's going to be that. And there's going to be some what I call forced socialization where I'll divide people into groups and we'll get together in our groups and there'll be some like conversation prompts. And that way, it's not always the most natural thing in the world, especially for us programmers to just go up to somebody and start talking to them. And so this will be a way to not in a forced, awkward way, but in a very natural way, prompt people to have conversations and meet people and stuff like that. My hope for every attendee is that they go home having made at least one really good new friend. Kind of like Friendly RB, where the whole thing was about friendliness, very similar vibe for this conference. Thank you so much for being on chatting with us today. It's been really good. There's a bunch of stuff that we've gone into and things that were surprising to me and a bunch of things we could keep going with. So at some point, I'd love to have you back on Indie Rails. Yeah, I'd love to come back and thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Can you let our listeners know where people can find you and find out more about you if they aren't already following you online? Yeah, just one place, codewithjason.com. You can find everything I do starting there. And you might enjoy my weekly online meetups if you're a programmer. And again, you can find that there at codewithjason.com. And I hope that you reach out and maybe we can become friends. Love it. Thanks, Thanks, Jason. Jason. Thank you.